0: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the Sunday, May 31st episode of Poets and Muses, where we chat with poets about their inspirations. I'm your host, Imogen A. Rate. You can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on Instagram and Twitter under Poets and Muses. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right hand side of the Poets and Muses SoundCloud page. Now, besides our website and the SoundCloud page, you can also listen to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, as well as Stitcher. With us today is Hunter Hazleton, with whom I will be discussing his poem Hotel Elysee and my poem Safe Space. Before we do that, however, I'm going to go over some virtual events taking place during the week of June 1st. On Monday, June 1st, from 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Nui TV will be hosting the fourth of its 20 episode, the Nui Wind Carriers Challenge. Anyone can participate, but only indigenous youths between 8 and 25 years old are eligible for the prices, including a grand price of a MacBook Pro. You can find out more information about that at facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 644 Again, that's Facebook.com/for/events/for/slash/six four four five four seven three forward five eight six eight zero From eight p.m. Central Time, Frizzy Productions will be hosting its weekly Poets Underground open mic this week. Our past poet guest Amp will be on. This will take place on Instagram at poets underscore. Playground underscore. Again, that's at poets underscore playground underscore. On Tuesday, June 2nd, from 3 to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, Urban Word NYC will be hosting its weekly first draft open mic for people between the age of 13 and 23. This is a virtual writing workshop and open mic series facilitated by Roya Marsh. This would take place on Zoom, and you can register at urbanwordmyc.org forward slash first draft. Again, that's urbanwordmyc.org forward slash first draft. From 5 to 5.30 p.m., Arizona Masters of Poetry will be hosting is Speak Poet via Instagram Live at Arizona Masters of Poetry. From 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern Time, The Tiny Cover will be hosting its Virtual Poetry Night via Zoom. You can find out more information and sign up at thetinycover.com forward slash events. Again, that's thetinycover.com forward slash events. From 6 to 8 p.m. Pacific Time, Connect and He will be hosting its Weekly Poetry Writing Workshop via Zoom. You can find out more information on that at meetup.com and search for Chandler Prose and Poetry Meetup. Again, that's meetup.com. Search for Chandler Prose and Poetry Meetup. From 3 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time, Vision and TV We'll be hosting is Nui Got Talent, which showcases Indigenous youths between 13 and 25 years old via Instagram Live. You can RSVP at Nui TV. That's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V. Again, that's N-W-E-J-I-N-A-N-T-V. On Thursday, June 4th, from 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Spit That DC will be hosting its weekly open mic via Instagram Live at Spit That DC. That's S-P-I-T-D-A-T-D-C. Again, that's S-P-I-T-D-A-T-D-C. From 7 to 8 p.m., Phonetic Spit will be hosting its weekly open mic via Instagram Live at Phonetic Spit. That's P H O N E. T-I-C-S-P-I-T. Again, that's P-H-O-N-E-T-I-C-S-P-I-T. From 9 to 10.30 p.m. Pacific Time, Kevin Wong will be hosting his Introverse Paradise open mic via Zoom, and you can find out more information about that at KevinWongComedy.com forward slash shows. Again, that's KevinWongComedy.com forward slash shows. Wong is spelled W-O-N-G. On Friday, June 5th, from 4 to 5 p.m. Pacific Time, Shade Literary Arts and Authors Large and Small will be hosting the third of their three virtual benefit reading for queer writers of color via Zoom. And you can find out information about that at facebook.com forward slash events, forward slash 268 806 Again, that's facebook.com forward slash events forward slash 268 821 From 9 to 10.30 p.m. Pacific Time, Kevin Wong once again will be hosting another edition of Introvert's paradise open mic via zoom and again you can find that at kevinwongcomedy.com forward slash shows on saturday june 6th from 5 to 5:30 5 p.m pacific time arizona masters of poetry will be hosting its speak poet saturday via instagram live at arizona masters of poetry and now let us welcome our poet guest of the week hunter hazelton Hi, Hunter. Thank you very much for coming on to Poets and Muses.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's it's an honor. Thank you.
0: I appreciate that. So you brought with you your poem, Hotel Elysee. Um, Before we get into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about yourself.
1: Absolutely. My name is is Hunter Hazelton. I um, was born and raised in Phoenix, Arizona. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I've grown up here my entire life. A lot of my uh, poetry is not influenced by where I'm from. Like, I often call myself more of a dreamer, and I like to live in ideas rather than reality. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I've written poetry for for most of my life. The mm-hmm. um, first time I ever encountered poetry was in, in first grade, mm-hmm. and we were writing haikus. Oh, uh, and wow. I wrote one about a toucan, and um, it was published in our little school newspaper, and I was so proud of it. I hung Very it up nice. on the fridge for very long time. So ever since then, I've always been obsessed with writing stories and making people feel something and, and making people laugh. Mm. A lot of the time when I was younger, I wrote a lot of narratives and, and prose that would, you know, tell people, you know, funny stories and whatnot. But then as time got on, I I became a little more disillusioned and stopped believing in fairy tales and God. Um, but I've recently kind of come back to those ideas and, and those... Those fantasies, the fantastical, really, really inspires me.
0: You have mentioned that your chapbook uh, talked about uh, it has something to do with religiosity or, or God. Can you tell us a little, yes. little bit about that?
1: Religion is a, a very large idea and aspect of my my chapbook that I'm working on. My chapbook is pretty autobiographical. It's, it's very confessional, mm-hmm. um, but. It, it was really inspired by the idea of, of falling in love, like most young poets write mm-hmm. about love. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I had an experience um, where I was in a long-distance relationship for um, over two years, and I wanted to compare that idea to to love and, and religion. Um, just the faith of it, the, mm-hmm. the holding out for somebody who you can't see or touch or experience. And, um, you know, it just takes a lot of a lot of faith in choosing that every single day. And so when I used to believe in a God, I, I used that to inform this relationship and inform this poetry chapbook.
0: Mm, I definitely see some of the parallels. But at least, you know, unlike God, he talks back to you.
1: <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so there's a there's a more of a two-way street there. Right, um, right. But yeah, there definitely was a, a large aspect of, of solitude and of desire and longing uh, mm-hmm. in that relationship. In right. um, and, and one, and one of the poems, I kind of compare a long-distance call that keeps dropping and, and breaking up to, to a prayer because it's, right. it's talking to somebody who can't necessarily answer you.
0: Right, right. Hmm. That's interesting. I can't wait to see it and read it. Um, <laughs> it, it kind of made me think of... I forget, was it the Portuguese nun who wrote poetry about God? Or was it prose? I can't remember. Um, I'm not sure. You have said that you became disillusioned. You mentioned a little bit about how that affected your writing. You said you didn't write as much story, but you still wrote poetry.
1: Yes, yes. I feel like, you know, uh, there's a a certain stigma around poetry that all poetry is sad. And I... (laughs) When, when I became sort of depressed as an adolescent, um, I, I, turned to poetry because I thought poetry is what you write when you're sad.
2: Mm. Um,
1: and it kind of grew from there. Not, not all of my poems are sad. I love a yeah. sad poem, yeah. but <laughs> I, um, I started exploring other topics and ideas, uh, as I aged. Mm. Um, and, and uh, just kept writing about everything that was going on in my, in my life. I became very inspired by Sylvia Plath, who definitely Mm. perpetuates that idea of depressing poetry. But um, Mm. I was really enamored by her and how she could take any sort of small human experience and turn it into a a greater idea Mm. related to um, wars and history. and, And was really, really explicit about her experiences. So mm. that's kind of what I've, I've tried to do in, in recent years, and it's, it's helped a lot.
0: Oh, great. Yeah, that's wonderful. Wait, so if you don't mind giving us a taste of your poetry through your Hotel Elise?
1: Yes, absolutely. Hotel Elise. When in Rome, do as the Romans do. No one was touching hands in the West, so we don't touch hands in the West. Because we know any man who touches man is a dead man. I watched you touch a chalky statue. I wanted to tell you not to. I wanted to tell you to touch me instead. I felt limp and limbless like those statues. All day I felt the mundanity of my own skin turn me over and carve into me like a Roman golden chalice. When in Rome, do me as the Romans do. Oh, my Midas, the battles are no longer inside the Colosseum. The battles are surrounding it. The battles are in streets fighting for each other's hands and empty parking lots and back alleys, hotel rooms. We are dead men in the West and God-men in the heart of it all. Safe in our hotel, we grab for each other under blankets with the curtains drawn. How oh, I missed your fingers, your warmth. Touch me, hold me, gold me, lay me down. I am cold gold wrapped in hotel sheets like a toga. You are the god I worship, and I am the dead man. You showed me the world in a single palm, and I raised mine to show you two bare hands.
0: Thank you. There's also some religiosity in that particular poem.
1: Yes, yes, there is, um, not so much, you know, christian based faith um, or anything like that but i was very uh, enamored by the the ancient religious philosophies of greek and roman mythology
0: right right and was it actually based off of a life experience
1: it was yes um so the name hotel i is probably the most autobiographical thing of of the poem Mm -hmm. um so a couple years ago uh through my university i had the opportunity to live and study in England for a time, and I did the worst thing that anyone could do, and I fell in love. <laughs> um, and <laughs> the person um, with whom I was, uh, he, uh, he took me to, to Rome on a little trip, and, uh, mm-hmm. and we went on a vacation together. And uh, I was just so enthralled and enamored by all of this ancient history, because we have nothing like that in America. Nothing is old that dates back to those times. But while I was there, I just started thinking about because we were in a same-sex relationship. I was thinking about uh, homophobia on a larger scale. I was thinking outside of America and, and what is it like to to have such a strong desire for somebody mm. but not feel comfortable to, to touch them mm. even in a society such as Rome where you know homoeroticism was such a very big part of its culture way back when right, up right. to that. That really stemmed the idea of of desire and longing, just not being able to touch something that you want so badly, just craving that human experience.
0: Right. I happen to love Italy, but I don't, I haven't seen it from your perspective, partly because I don't, I haven't been in that sort of relationship. So I haven't needed to wonder whether or not I'd be safe if I was to touch my lover in public. As you probably know, Italy has this very well-known Italian men, anyway, have this well-known reputation of uh, catcalling women and just very like uh, outward display of uh, affection. In some ways, I was kind of surprised to read your poem, the reaction you have from it, and was that something that you felt? Was that something palpable that you felt when you were there? Yes,
1: I, I do think so. I, I think I feel that very strongly. Um, mm. And it's not so much just you know Italian culture that I was really thinking about. Um, I mean, in Rome, it was a very large tourist town. so um, mm. I, I I felt more so the pressure from other people, rather than just the, the, the city and the town, mm-hmm. um, but I remember, uh, it did cross my mind before we actually took the trip, and I was doing some research on, on gay rights and homophobia across um, Europe and, right. and, and in Italy, mm-hmm. and um, I, I did read uh, that in, in 2016, about a year before, before we took this trip,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: there were... Uh, hate crimes against uh, trans people. And I think there were five murders right. uh, uh, of trans people and um, a uh, vandalization of a, a gay rights center in Rome. So ah. it definitely put me on edge going there, but I, I can't say that I experienced anything anywhere similar to that when when we had our trip.
0: Right, right. Because- I think the impression that Western Europe has always given me is that it's pretty advanced in terms of human rights on a, at least on a surface level. It's not the sort of level that we, I mean, it obviously, it has both racism, uh, very rampant racism, especially depending on which race as well, but also uh, definitely, you know, both sexism and also homophobia. Obviously, it ha- not having to be concerned with that on a personal level I never had to like like you research your trip in that respect so it's really interesting to hear your experience of it but I'm glad you didn't have any firsthand at least nothing overt uh happen, which is good
1: yeah so am I thankfully yeah um, the aspect of not doing even the smallest public displays of affection like holding hands or sitting too closely together, there there was definitely some tension there, mm. um, and that's really what what drove me to write this poem. But mm. as I was writing the poem, um, even though that is the, the situation uh, that the speaker is undergoing, I really just wanted to imbue this sense of innate desire, something that you know we can all relate to, but not being able to express that, whether because of extrinsic or intrinsic forces, um, mm-hmm. just that holding back and how. How fearful one can be to be completely vulnerable.
0: Right, right. Did you feel, um, since, you know, even though you were in Rome for a much shorter time than you were in London, did you say? It was London, right? I was-
1: I was in England. Um, England I was okay. a couple hours uh, northeast of London. I was in a, a small town called Norwich, oh, and okay. I studied at the University of East Anglia.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. I've heard of that. So, uh, in comparison to so Phoenix, Norwich, uh, as well as Rome, even though you, you stayed at different length times in the, these three places, how comfortable are you in being yourself in those three places?
1: did feel a lot more comfortable with who I was uh, at the university and in England in general. Mm. Um, there, was, there was a lot of uh, queer safe spaces and queer okay. people um, okay. at the university. Right. Um, so I definitely found my group um, and uh, yeah, everybody was very, very accepting. Mm. Uh, There's lots of, of gay clubs there. And, right. um, and personally, I identify as, as bisexual, so sometimes it can be very easy to, to mask it and kind of play the, the hetero role. Right. Um, but no, I, I felt very, very safe in England um, and, and very comforted. But there's still always that fear of going to a new place. Right. And in, in Phoenix, I grew up I'm on the west side. Mm. Um, and the west side, I, I definitely, maybe not so much because of a... a a homosexual aspect, but um, just more of the culture. I mean, it's kind of a keep your head down culture. When you're mm. walking the streets or when you're going to a gas station, the grocery store, you don't really talk to anybody. Mm. Uh, central Phoenix, downtown, I absolutely love because of the diversity and um, how many different people I've met there and how many different types of people, people who come from all over. Wow. Um, so I, I'm enamored and I love downtown Phoenix in the central part of the valley.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a fear that exists no matter really where I go um, right. because you just never know who you're going to run into. Right. But I, I definitely feel it less so in, in, in Phoenix and definitely didn't feel it very much at all when I was in England.
0: Right. Okay. Well, it's also sort of the university culture, right? I imagine even at ASU, you could feel that it's much more um, accepting because of the sort of campus that it, it is. I, I don't know how that compares, because um, in each place, not only was your experience different because you were going into different places, and also, you know, the amount of time you spend in each place. I, I mean, I don't mean to put you on the spot about which has a better campus. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no worries. Yeah, so are, are you asking uh, which has a more comfortable culture at Northern yeah. Arizona University or University of East Anglia.
0: Oh, wait, that's where you went? I thought you went to AISU for some reason. Excuse me. Um, so oh, no,
1: I did spend a good portion of my time in the Valley. Um, okay. And I spent my last year uh, at NAU um, actually online. Oh, okay. Um, but I did attend Northern Arizona.
0: Okay, okay. So, yeah, I mean, in, because I, I feel like if you compare, um, it becomes more apples and apples because you're comparing two campus lives.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I do think there is something special about universities in, in this day and age. I, I feel like younger people uh, my generation are, typically are more progressive.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so there's there's a lot of safety and there's a lot of empathy and understanding of diversity and acceptance right. um, with, with very rare cases. Uh, I mean, especially in regard to homophobia, I feel rarer cases um, amongst young people at a university campus. Right. But it's, it, it is hard to compare the two. I, mean, I think that... Um, I think NAU and, and University of East Anglia, they, they both had this very small town feel to them, mm-hmm. um, which... Uh, I really liked, and I think that everybody was very, very accepting of each other at both campuses, right. and this isn't necessarily my, my PC answer, but <laughs> I, I couldn't really compare. Um, right. I couldn't compare socially which one was better, um, right. For in my experience. I do know that NAU has had its fair share of, of animosity, of, of hate crimes and, yeah. and microaggressions. Right. I know there was a, a lot of discrepancies with the the university's president, um, mm. eliminating safe spaces my freshman year, at uh, the oh. campus. Uh, but there's a lot of solidarity within the students.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's what makes a difference, right? Both, both the solidarity within student bodies and also how the administration treats the need for safe space and, and need for, uh, certain guarantees um, on an official level you know um, yeah but going going back to your poem from what we've talked about just now I feel like was there was there a specific incident that made you write this
1: what started me really writing this poem although those ideas of discrimination and, and fear um, and desire all of those aspects uh, kind of drove the poem I, I did start writing. This, this ex-lover of mine um, a series of poems, you know, as little mm-hmm. love gifts. Um, and, and I would just write write poems for him and this one mm-hmm. just kind of stuck out and uh, I continued on with it and I really, really wanted to um, inform and enforce the, the imagery of Rome, um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and, uh, and really enforce that idea of God and, and worshipping somebody so much. Mm. Um, just, you know, being completely blinded by, by this emotion of desire.
2: Right. Um,
1: so I, 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 really worked on, uh, just that sort of religious as- aspect of the poem, um, and compared the lover to, to Midas and the, the golden touch and just wanting to feel special and, and cared for and golden. Right. Um, and that's what I really wanted to, to put the speaker through, um, just that, that desire, I guess.
0: Yeah, there is a little bit of sense of objectification because of being treated as a gold, a chalice. At the same time, there is also this sense of receptiveness and also a preciousness to it because gold is precious. Yeah. So I was wondering about that choice. Why make yourself an inanimate object?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, that's a wonderful question. I um, so that that part of the poem, the, the gold aspect, um, one of my favorite things about writing confessional poetry is that it, as much as it's very much inspired by um, my own personal experiences, mm-hmm. I uh, personally I, I have a, a tab for the dramatics, um, <laughs> and I love this idea of putting myself. Through something more than what I actually went through and, and mm. that's when the speaker kind of separates from me but right. um, I really wanted to to emphasize this this speaker's desire and how he would almost take anything at that moment and do anything right. just to feel wanted to be wanted right. Um, right. and so the aspect of gold and, and being turned to gold when touched um, there is a sense of objectification there. And for the speaker, I really wanted him to, to preach that idea in this sort of dramatic monologue to mm. confess that, you know, he'll take anything he can get. Mm. Whether that is objectification, but any sort of attention or touch from this person would mean the world to him, right. um, almost like a religion. And um, I, I do think, though, that there's also this aspect of this this idea that once you're touched and you're turned to gold, that may be you'll be wanted more and more. Maybe you'll be so valuable that you'll be the only thing that this person touches. Mm. Um, so that's really where that idea came from.
0: Right, right. And also, it, it is about desire, isn't it? It's also the the idea of the forbidden is um, throughout the poem, it's, it's weave in and out of the imagery. It's not just because of the potential for homophobic acts uh, against violence that that you are protecting yourself from but also this idea of crossing some boundaries of you know take me the speaker is saying to his lover that i want you this much you can do whatever
1: yes absolutely there, there is that aspect in that and i um that kind of comes from that that sense of religion and, and a relationship with god mm-hmm. um you know, it's, it's this entity that's so powerful and all being, but you can never really talk to him. You can never really feel him truly. I mean, mm-hmm. scientifically, a lot of people would argue with me on that one, but mm-hmm. um, I just wanted to, to take that idea um, and just any, you know, I, when I was struggling with religion before I, I became an atheist, mm-hmm. um, I uh, I really, really wanted any sign from God that He was there, that he was looking out for me, Mm -hmm. that I was somebody who mattered. Mm -hmm. And um, I I definitely had similar feelings of that um, when I was falling in love for the first time. Mm -hmm. And I I wanted to draw that parallel. um, Mm -hmm. And I wanted the speaker to not have such a good sense of self, to just be so vulnerable and and self-conscious and and non-confident. Um, to really enforce that idea of blindly falling in in love with somebody, and, right? You know,
0: yeah. And also, it's a it's a young love, right? So there's always that learning curve of whether or not we are falling for the right person.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's there's a lot of doubt, um, <laughs> and especially in a, in a long distance relationship, and this goes for any relationship too.
2: But, right.
1: Yeah. Um, just that that idea of doubt um, is this right but it's like like a religion a relationship is something that you choose every day right. um, you choose you choose to love that person you choose to give yourself to that person every every single waking moment right. um, and, I, and I think there's a very special idea in that, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that
0: you have to make sure that you're choosing it I think that's the important thing. I mean, we don't always consciously weigh our options, but in essence, we do choose every day, every hour, as you said. Absolutely. Uh, this poem is part of that chapbook, right?
1: It is, yes. Okay. It's, um, it, it was one of the first uh, poems that found its place in, in the manuscript, right. um, and one of the early poems that enforced the, the larger idea of, right. of the chapbook.
0: Right, right. To continue with what you were talking about in terms of uh, the speaker in this poem, being a little bit n- unsure of himself, I felt like you, you you did that well, and especially towards the end where you were talking about you are the god I worship and I am the dead man. You show me the world in a single palm and I raise mine to show you two bare hands. Again, this idea of the I character coming with as if they have nothing to offer. So I was, I was curious about that because that's a lot of nihilism in some sense. So I was wondering why uh, you chose to go in that direction.
1: I chose to go in that direction because it's self-confidence and self-efficacy. is is something that I've, I've had a a very long struggle with. Mm -hmm. Um, Like I think most young people Mm -hmm. um, finding yourself and, um, when you fall in love so early, uh, it's really easy to to evaluate yourself through the lens of others, mm-hmm. and um, to feel like when somebody does something so kind for you or is, has given you what you wanted, you feel almost guilty because you don't know what to give in return.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I, I wanted that that idea to be in there, and I um, those those that ending couplet of showing me the world in a single palm and raising the two bare hands. Mm-hmm that remained from the original draft of the poem mm-hmm. um, in a weird way I liked that idea I wanted I wanted to show the all aspects of the speaker I wanted to really characterize him and I think it's it's important because like in religion it's you're you're the weaker one in a relationship with God you're you're subjective to him mm-hmm. um, and so it was really more to to enforce that idea of faith mm-hmm. and um, also to characterize the speaker a little to show how Devoted he was, how unworthy he felt. So he would do anything for this person.
0: Right, right. Similar to what you're saying about the uh, person's relationship with God is that you, because there's no feedback, you never know, right, that you're you're standing with that entity, and there's a similar sense between you and your lover.
1: Exactly, exactly. That that desire to be touched, to to be shown affection. Um, even if it's, you know, just a simple brush of the arm or holding someone's hand, a, a phone call, um, mm-hmm. all of those things mean so much to, to anybody in a relationship, just any, any sign that they care about you as much as you care about them. Um, and so I, I saw that a lot in religion, mm-hmm. um, you know, when I was, when I was going to church and a lot of people would say like, no, oh, this is a sign from God, this is what I'm supposed to do. Right. Um, this, this feels right and we try to justify it right. um, in any way that we can, even if it's a toxic relationship. Right. Um, lots of people fall into toxic relationships and justify smaller things um, and say, this person, this person loves me and this is just how they show it.
0: Um, <laughs> yeah,
1: I, I think that really just plays a larger part in my, my philosophies on religion.
0: Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm yeah i mean religion does you know especially when we're born into a certain religion it really does inform most of our relationships
1: absolutely absolutely i definitely feel that i feel that very strongly and i I don't want to sound like somebody who's completely against religion i think that um religion has been a a very large part of the lives of most of my friends Mm -hmm. and i don't fault them for that i i can't bring myself to believe in what they believe in but I think that it's a beautiful idea, um, and I'm very happy for those who are comforted in that, and I don't fault them or judge them in any way. That's not my my place. But um, just for me, I, I, I couldn't really follow it, um, just especially going back to the homosexual aspect,
2: mm-hmm. of
1: just being told uh, 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 by multiple faiths that God won't love you if you are this way, but at the same time there's that conflicting ideology of well, God made you the person you are. So did he make me this way? Did he make me desire these things? Or is this my free will? Those little discrepancies are what just taught me to focus on myself and not really blindly follow anybody.
0: Right, right. And I think that's why a lot of people, for various reasons, choose to be spiritual rather than be religious.
1: Yes, yes. I I do feel that. I feel that very strongly. I, I do like the idea of being a spiritual person. I definitely don't believe in, in fate. I believe in free will, but I I do find a lot of serendipitous moments in life, um, a mm-hmm. lot of coincidences. Right. Um, and I think you can go back and think that things happen for a reason, but um, just really trying to make make the meaning of life that you want it to be um, mm-hmm. is more of my spiritual philosophy.
0: Right, right. Like you, you said, and it's throughout this poem, is this dynamic this power dynamic can you speak to that in terms of if you were to separate it from the religiosity part of it obviously you wrote it and it is a cornerstone of your chapbook of the theme of your chapbook um but can you uncouple those things since we're looking at it as a standalone poem
1: yeah yeah definitely. um like, like I was saying a minute ago um, I, I definitely battled with with problems in my in my confidence um, and I think that I not so much just in my relationships or the relationship that this poem was inspired by but just in general really I, I had a lot of a lot of problems seeing myself um, through my own lens and I would evaluate myself through the perspectives of other people mm-hmm. Um and I thought that was really important, and I think that when I write a poem, I um, I want to learn something from it. I'm not just really writing for catharsis or
2: yeah. writing
1: to make it sound beautiful or to make something beautiful. It's really to understand something. Okay. And um, a lot of this chapbook, as much as it focuses on uh, ideas of religion, blind faith, love, long-distance relationships, it's really It was really more of a lesson to myself on on how to to be more confident and to to know who I am. Um, And the speaker follows a very similar journey through these poems. uh, Mm -hmm. It's the same speaker through all of them. And he, by the end of it, has a a moment where he he finally feels content with being where he is. He's not longing for something else or to be somewhere or somebody else. Right. so yeah I, I think that the, the speaker is very much based on me and my my experiences and my emotions so that that aspect of my poetry is really just a lesson and in, in viewing myself and being completely honest and taking responsibility for those feelings and, and the battle that it took to get out of it
0: right right yeah I I, th- I think it's uh, I I get the same thing when when I go back and read my own poems, or even after I write a certain poem, and I'm like, "Huh, why did I write that?" You know, it's it's very interesting, and you're kind of wondering what state of mind you're in.
1: Exactly, bringing I think when you write a poem, it's it's a lot of the subconscious almost speaking through you, right. and uh, it's bringing those ideas and those thoughts to the forefront. And when it comes to to editing and revision, that's when the you know your, your consciousness is really trying to to formulate and evaluate your subconsciousness and that's that's probably my favorite aspect of writing poetry it's just that that conversation with the self
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. your poem has a visual aspect to it um and i was wondering if you don't mind um speaking about that a little bit why did you choose to format it in this way
1: yes yes um lineation is something that is 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 really fun for me to play around with Mm -hmm. um i i really liked when at the time when i wrote this poem i was starting to get into um the idea of white space and and not having the poem flush against the left in a traditional format i liked um I liked that idea, mm. and so when I was thinking about the theme of this poem, I, as much as I want to just, you know, press tab and enter and hit a bunch of spaces because it looks cool, right. um, I, I really wanted to do it with intent, um, mm-hmm. and so I, I really had to assess what the poem was about, and, um, and for me, it was really just this this idea of disorder, and mm-hmm. this idea of um, not not being able to grasp something,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: so the lines are are barely touching each other, they're barely formed together, it's, it's very loosely shaped, mm-hmm. um, and so I really wanted to do that to, to give it that visual aspect, when you just look at it, you already feel this, this discontent, this um, chaotic aspect, mm-hmm. and um, so... Yeah, that's, that's really why I, I formatted it the way I did, um, because I wanted the reader's eye to to really work for the poem, just to read the poem, as much as the, the speaker was working to get what he wanted out of it.
0: Right. right, Huh. That's wonderful. So did you did you format it as you went, or did you do it afterwards?
1: Typically, when, I, when I'm formatting, I, I kind of just do what feels right in the moment. Mm-hmm. And and obviously, there's editing with that. But um, yeah, yeah, this poem, I I knew as soon as I started writing it that I didn't want it to be together. I felt like if I was, I definitely do not follow the rule of don't edit while you write, Mm. um, but usually, a homie when it comes to formatting. I can't find myself to finish a first draft of a poem if I don't start formatting it right away. So Mm. a lot of my poems um, maintain a very similar visual appearance as when I. Wrote the first draft, so this poem definitely um, was all over the place when I first wrote it, mm. um, and I, I just wanted that that experience of reading with your eyes, the, the way the eye moves to right. to get from line to line to to mirror the, the speaker's desire and his chaos and trying to get it. Right. Um, so yeah, this this poem was it always started started off that way.
0: Right. Wow. Thank you. Um. Yeah. And and it is. Definitely has that, you know, when you talk about it, that imitation of desire, such strong desire, suppressed desire as well, that when it comes out, it's like a volcano b- burst, you know, and it's kind of just goes everywhere. It's very chaotic, as you said. Yes, yes,
1: exactly, exactly. I, I love the way a poem looks, especially contemporary poetry. I think it's it's more popular now too. Um, to have lines just scattered about the page um, right. you know and we're not so constricted by a typewriter anymore right. um, so i think it's it's a very very fun aspect to play with and um i think it, that it shows a lot of intention and deliberation in a poem and i think it, it offers a lot more perspective as a reader as well as a poet
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah yeah definitely when i was reading your poem i picked up this idea of Wanting a safe space, wanting to find somewhere where you can express your feelings towards someone. Of course, that is only talking to the exterior forces that's keeping the lovers apart, not really to mention the internal uh, conflicts of it. That's why I picked my poem, which is called Safe Space. As you know, safe space is not just safe because of the physical aspect of it, but also the psychological aspect of it. So yes, yes. So I'm going to read that and then we can talk about it. So again, this is called Safe Space. Show me the poetry of your soul. Let my cerebral crab legs, like sea spiders, meander through the well-placed pictographs gathering from contact, the invested love in its glory and gore. The mountains and valleys call for calm explorations in steady gait. My low center of gravity will ensure balance, and hidden legs like antennae detect latent vibes. No delectable morsel will escape their inquisitive probe with a gentle touch to cradle the tender soil.
1: Wow. Yeah, I was really, really enthralled with this piece when you sent it to me. I definitely got that, that sense of connection um, or the desire for connection. Mm. But there's still some sort of difficulty in, in getting there, in getting to that destination.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think similar to yours, even though the speaker did have this physical experience with his lover, the fact is because of the, I would say, the power dynamics, It was never completely mutual. There was always some kind of uh, like a space, like a wall, invisible wall between them in some ways. And I feel like in, in my poem, it's very similar in that sense that the speaker is asking to have that interaction, not necessarily knowing whether or not she will obtain that permission or she will have that experience.
1: Absolutely. I, I really like how you just use the word permission. Mm -hmm. I feel like that was the word that I was kind of lacking in my vernacular when I was thinking about this poem, but yes, permission, because in in any relationship you, you want it to be permissible and you want it to be consensual. Mm -hmm. Um, and just the idea that it may not be uh, mutually wanted or desired is, it definitely imbues a lot of anxiety in any, in any sort of companionship. Mm -hmm. Um, so I really, really enjoyed that of your poem. And I really liked how you used imagery like crab legs or um, comparing um, cerebral imagery to, to that of sea spiders. Mm-hmm. Um, just like these, these wavy phalanges, um, you know, just moving about uh, and then suddenly juxtaposed by pictographs wanting this sense of, of fluency and, you know, just organization. When mm. connecting with somebody isn't so organized, it's not so simple, yeah. um, and I really like that idea of just trying, of wanting that desire to have access, mm. um, but its emotions are very inaccessible sometimes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, because there's no there's no real interaction there, right? It's almost like a sales pitch.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's yeah. I really liked that. This was um, kind of like a, a monologue in a sense. You know, you you have this idea of another person there, and you can almost see them, mm-hmm. but it's really just this speaker talking to them, um, mm-hmm. and you don't get anything back. Um, similar to a relationship with. With, with God and I'm praying, you know, don't <laughs> yeah. always get uh, a verbal answer, right. and sometimes we just crave that so much, we just want them to say, yes, this is okay, or let me just be open and vulnerable with you, which is, what I'm getting that your speaker wants is this sense of vulnerability and understanding to know what's going on through this person's mind, mm-hmm. um, but just this, this inaccessibility, these walls that are up, this, this mountain to climb just to get there.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> I always enjoy what other people get out of your poems. You know, it's like, ah, oh, okay, that's that's really interesting. How you know, and and it's like what you said about what, learning from your own poems. Um, having a conversation with another person about your poem could also teach you about what you cannot see, your blind spots.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think that a, a poem is very similar to praying, you know, a conversation with the self where you mm-hmm. so badly want somebody to understand you and to listen to you, mm-hmm. but really it's, it's you're writing it for yourself and right. you're, you're writing it to understand what's, what's going on in, in your mind because it's always a, a very difficult place to navigate.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely.
1: I was really really interested by the, the imagery of cerebral crab legs and sea spiders. I thought it was very haunting. So what made you think of that in, in this poem?
0: Well, funnily enough, I forget if it was the night before I wrote this, I had a dream about eating crabs. <laughs> <laughs> and there is also the sense that, you know, I'm one of these very, very curious people. I want to know everything about everyone. But if I'm interested in someone, then I really want to know everything about this person. It's a desire that's very intrusive. People might not appreciate it because it's so like overwhelming. And crab legs is very spiky, right? They're not smooth. They're not you know, there, there is an idea, even though this poem is called Safe Space, when you think of crab leg, you think of accidentally being pricked by something and getting hurt by it. So there is a sense of somebody who's a little bit blunt. You know, their desire might be very overwhelming. So those are sort of the combination. And also, crabs to me are like sea spiders, that was before I knew that there actually is a thing called sea spiders. <laughs> <laughs>
1: okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I really, really like that imagery, especially because it's followed by mountains and valleys. They um, say the mountains and valleys call for calm. And keeping that that idea of, of crab legs and comparing the mind and the brain mm-hmm. to crab legs... Um, it's like every every little motion that they have walking across the sand or the, the shore or whatever mm-hmm. wherever crabs walk across it's, right. it's always very um very intentional and there, there's these very small steps in that um and so to think of a crab you know trekking these mountains and valleys um i really like that idea for two reasons i, I like it one just thinking about it you know very realistically uh for a, a, a crab to climb mountains and valleys it's a very very slow process you're not going to get where you want very fast <laughs> um but i also really like that idea um because it's just because of that intention and it's showing how much this speaker is is willing to endure just just to get what they want mm. to, to reach that safe space
0: mm, mm, yeah yeah And when I said this is a sales pitch, it's also the speaker is trying to offer a safe space, right? Because when she's talking about invest the love in its glory and gore, and then comparing that to mountains and valleys, because love is never smooth. So in a sense, she's also saying, whatever form of love you are offering, I can take it. Similar to yours.
1: Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, I really, really like that idea. Just offering as much as you can and hoping that it's enough.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and that's, that's really what a safe space is. Um, right. and even thinking about actual safe spaces for certain communities and, and groups of people to go to when they, when they need um, to feel comforted, mm-hmm. um, there's still always that worry of, um, is it going to be enough? Um, am I offering enough for somebody who's really in need? Do they even need me? Okay. Um, so I, I really, really like that idea of experience.
2: Yeah, um, yeah,
1: yeah. Was there anything emotionally that, that prompted this poem other than the dream of eating crab legs?
0: Well, uh, I have been having this uh, crush forever. It's very one-sided. <laughs> this person is like the best muse ever because it, he's produced a lot of poetry. Um, <laughs> but, you know, as you can hear, it's very unrequited. So that's what prompted me to start out with the show me the poetry of your soul because uh, obviously the speaker is assuming the person that she's speaking with or to has a beautiful soul.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I really like that idea too of of, of crush or or lover as as muse. I mean, I can definitely uh, empathize with that one. I think that um, love or other people are the best muses.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I mean, I, I produced a whole chapbook book about one, one muse. But yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's wonderful. And I think that it's a, a great way to, to evaluate, you know, your role in a relationship, um, but also just to, to understand what you want from it. And I think that this poem executes that very well.
0: Thank you, thank you. I am not sure of what I want. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm learning properly from my own poetry. I think other people are getting more out of (laughs) it. So so I really appreciate that. I think I think part of life is that sometimes you have your experience and you tell your experience to other people which you might not get understand yourself you might not be learning a lesson you should be <laughs> through that experience but somehow other people are getting a much better lesson than you are which is i, I think you know um i think yeah. it's good um yeah somebody should get something out of this
1: <laughs> yeah absolutely i mean, i I can't tell you the amount of times I've written a poem, especially a very early draft, and I've shown it to somebody, and I'm like, well, what do you think this means? So they're like, I don't know. What does it mean? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm asking you. What do you think
0: it means? <laughs> tell me, please.
1: I have no idea.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think once in a while, you just let whatever cluster of words come out the way they want to come out. And Yes, yes. They don't have to make sense, because... I think that's one of the freedoms of poetry,
1: yeah, absolutely absolutely I, I think poetry is, is very liberating and 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 one of my favorite things about poetry in general, especially just the composition of one poem mm-hmm. um, is that you know you can revisit it later, I think um you know as any artist the, you're your own biggest critic, um, mm-hmm. but when you write something, even if it's just um a, a stream of consciousness onto the page, there's still a lot of intention there that the poet themselves might not even realize right. um, and so in in writing poetry so to, to learn about the self and to connect the self um, I think one one interesting idea that I've, I've had to to comprehend is that you know when I revisit a poem that I wrote months ago weeks ago or a couple hours ago if I if I don't like it I mean it might just be that I'm in a different headspace and I, I have a different viewpoint or or philosophy in life but it's just really fun to understand where I was in a particular moment
0: yeah Um, and I
1: I think poetry every poem is a particular moment
0: yeah it's like a mini diary entry
1: yeah absolutely and it, it Unlike the diary, though, it's it's a very empathetic experience. You want people to read it. I don't mm. want to want anybody to read my diary, so I love masking <laughs> it and the verse.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's what makes the reading of poetry a very vulnerable experience. Reading one's own poetry, maybe, because you're revealing so much, right? And sometimes you're not sure what you're revealing, even. Exactly.
1: Exactly. And um, yeah, there's there's so much fear and poetry. Poetry is probably one of the scariest things to, to do. Um, it's one of the most vulnerable things, especially at, at open mics and performing and reading poetry in front of others. Mm. Um, you know, it, we we're so terrified, uh, naturally, that, you know, other people might not like the poem. And sometimes it can be easy to, to not be able to compartmentalize, oh, do they think this is a bad poem because this is a bad experience that I went through? Is it invalid? Is what I'm feeling invalid? Um, but sometimes there's just a disconnect from from that emph- that empathy and that person might just not feel what you're feeling um, and so it's just it's always very scary to share your work. but I think having confidence in in the emotions you feel and where you were in a particular point in time is is really what poetry is about and why it's such a risk.
0: Yeah, and I think you know in the valley, I found especially most of them open mics have been very accepting of uh whatever your experiences you bring and been very empathetic at the same time i i kind of wanted to since you brought up this point which i really appreciate and you've been published how do you deal with rejection because with publishing comes the necessity of being rejected many times
1: yeah so how do i deal with rejection i just uh, uh curl up in a ball and drink until I fall asleep <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've, uh, I've been rejected many times it's until recently in this last year that I've experienced a few successes but if you look at my uh, submittable page of my paypal oh my god the, the amount of time and dollars that I've spent to being rejected is egregious but um, yeah it's I, I think it's just it's really just being able to compartmentalize all the different factors and subjectivity that goes into to art um and poetry is an art form so it could okay. it could very much be that um, the subject of my poems um if i'm submitting something like hotel Elise, say mm-hmm. uh, where it's about desire or love that might not be what a particular journal or magazine um is looking for mm. maybe they they're, they're tired of love poems they want to you know, publish poems about the hate or anger,
2: mm-hmm. um,
1: uh, and so I think just understanding that it's not so much a personal attack, or that it's not that your poetry isn't good, it's just, it's just not the right fit, um, and that's just the hard thing, it's that you want to find the right fit. Um, One of my poems, um, and and when we met, the uh, the Erotica Festivus, I I recited this poem alongside Hotel Elise. it's called Nocturne After Separation, Mm -hmm. Um, and that poem, I would have to say, is is one of the very, very few poems that I'm I'm satisfied with, that I'm proud of, Mm -hmm. and I was so excited when I I knew that I finished that last draft, I just couldn't, I couldn't say it any better than the way I did. and working on it for so many months, that poem was like a little baby to me. Mm-hmm. And when I was sending it out, it was facing rejection after rejection right. from smaller magazines to larger magazines. Um, yeah. And I was just like, wow, maybe it's it's not good enough. Maybe it's not, maybe it's not good. Maybe I'm just not a good poet. But um, just that perseverance, and I kept trying, um, it, it led me to have the confidence to submit to the open pool of, of best new poets. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it, it ended up being being published in there um, congratulations so it, was, it was a very uh, thank you it was a it was a very very uh, humbling experience and I was so excited that that I was recognized by um, Kate Marvin who was the editor of 2019 and um, just to be in such a, a notable a notable anthology mm-hmm. after after being rejected so many times it was just I, I really had to to recognize that it's just about fit and placement and the right time, the right reader, the right subject, the right format. But really, it's just about being in the right place at the right time. I mean, it's so much it could be it just the way the poem looks, like we are talking about structure. Maybe people don't want to produce poems that have awkward lineation, and maybe they want to publish more traditional poetry or form poetry. Right. So um, just having to understand that you're not... For everybody, this
2: right, right.
1: is really what keeps me going, and I I do print my rejection slips out, and I keep them in a little folder. And um, there was a time that I was hanging them up on my wall, um, mm. just to just to show that I, I do try, and right. uh, it's a process
0: yeah it is it is i mean it's similar to finding the the person the love of your life you know
1: exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly so yeah. many factors in that so yes just just like poetry and finding it's it's home
0: it's, yeah. it's
1: a process and there's a lot of subjectivity
0: right right and i think i think it's very difficult for people to uh, especially at the moment of re- rejection to step back and realize that Uh, whether or not it's rejected by the world everybody even even if that happens the fact that you produced it has its own value you know because the act of writing poetry has its own value
1: exactly i i couldn't agree more with that it's easy to lose that, that vision and that sense of value when you're submitting to so many places and getting many rejection slips too. Because a lot of a lot of editors don't don't have the time to, to provide um, thorough feedback. It's usually just a uh, thank you for submitting your work, but unfortunately, it's not right for us at this time. Right. Um, and that's, you know, just kind of like the cookie-cutter letter that you get from, from anybody out in the literary world. Um, so it's just all about having that that confidence and perseverance and just knowing that your experience, at the very least, is enough. I mean, I've learned, too, that sometimes after so many rejections, I'll go back to the poem and think, okay, you know, maybe I can change some things. Maybe I can convey the same idea in a different way. Right. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a nice challenge. It's kind of like a fun little game. Yeah. Um, because if, if, you know, if I, if I was, or if any poet was able to just, you know, write something and after the first draft, get it unpublished by Copper Canyon or, or some very big press, um, you know, I feel like it'd be kind of boring, and rejections <laughs> are exciting, Yes. Yeah. knowing that somebody read your work.
0: Well, there's also the, the idea that when you become a well-known poet, sometimes, you don't necessarily work as hard at the writing because people are much more accepting of your work whether or not they quote unquote get it they just go by your fame go by the the renown of your name and that in itself has its own draw
1: yes yes absolutely you know like any person of, of celebrity, you know, once you, uh, kind of hone your craft and your voice or your performance, your name in a sense becomes a brand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then that brand can be, you know, very popular. Um, mm-hmm. oftentimes a lot of people like to do this with, with older poetry, you know, it's like, who do you read? Well, I read uh, T.S. Eliot. Um, and you throw out a big name, somebody who's very, you know, antiquated, uh, still yeah. relevant, but antiquated. Yeah. And, um, You know, somebody who's just of high notoriety, and so you seem a little bit more uh, astute and and grandiose Mm -hmm. um, just by having that name. But Mm -hmm. I think that going into that idea of of publishing, um, just the the celebrity of it, um, that almost kind of, for me, is not what I want. I mean, I would love to be, you know, more renowned, but I, I think that if I knew that I was being rewarded just for my name it would make the pursuit of poetry and what it really means, what it means at its core, a lot less valuable. Mm,
0: mm, yeah. Yeah. Then it goes back to this insecurity, right? Because you don't know, at first you don't know whether or not you're being rejected because of the quality of your work. And then you don't know whether or not you're being accepted because of the quality of your work.
1: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I'm, I, I love, I really admire, you know, um, smaller presses and a lot of, a lot of journal students too, um, where, you know, it's just blind reading. They, they don't want your manuscript with your name, and they don't want your poetry with your name, just just in case, you know, there's any bias there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I, I definitely love that idea of being blindly judged. I, I definitely would not want my name associated with any, with any acclaim or variety.
0: Yeah, I like that process as well. At the same time, I have a little bit of problem with the fact that the judge that's being advertised is not actually reading all of the manuscripts. They're only reading the top tier that somebody else has selected. So I feel like there is an aspect of false advertisement there.
1: Oh, absolutely. I I definitely agree with that. I do think, too, um, another thing I've learned being very young and newer to the, the literary community is that, you know, um, as subjective as, as as it is just to, to publish a poem, there can still be some uh, strategy to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I found myself reading more and more magazines and, and journals just to understand voice and, and style right. and what a particular press might be looking for right. when, when they're selecting work. And so I've noticed that in the poems that have had their their successes, when I sent it out with a little bit more intent, um, that's when I gave myself a better chance. So
2: um, Mm.
1: like like Best New Poet, I I bought a few of their previous anthologies, um, and and I also studied up on on Kate Marvin and revisited her work and Mm. tried to find something that I knew was in the middle of what that anthology looks for. And then also... What what Kate Marvin writes and, and her style, so I try to find my own balance with that, and it it kind of proves successful, and it's, it's not it's not definitely a black and white thing, but you know it's it's still a little bit more about strategy too.
0: Right, right, yeah. At the same time, I, I feel I feel like that also the fact that people judges whether or not they're judging the entire contest or judging only part of the contest they invariably skew the publication towards what they want right so um Mm -hmm. the gatekeeping itself can be problematic in terms of whether or not new voices get through
1: yes absolutely it's um yeah definitely a very a very daunting thing especially when you see a a big name as the judge i feel like for for some younger poets or newer poets it, it could be scary um it could uh Definitely deter them from submitting just because they're like, okay, yeah, I'm definitely not Ilya Kaminsky or I'm not Ada Limon or <laughs> Ocean Blanc. Um, like I can't, I can't have them read my work. I'm not ready. Um, <laughs> and then also, it, uh, in, at the same time, it can't encourage a lot of people just to say like, hey, maybe if I send this out and this, this poet gets a hold of my work, maybe maybe I can evaluate myself with that a little bit um, because I look up to them so much.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: and so when I've seen competitions that are, are judged by more renowned poets, um, I try to, to take away that aspect of celebrity mm-hmm. and just really think of whether or not this is a poet who inspires me and this is a poet who I really admire and I'll, I'll submit to those who inspire me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just so it's it's not like, it's not a game of celebrity and more of a, a game about craft and, and empathy.
0: Right, right. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate you talking with me about this, going into craft, besides talking about just our individual poems, specifically, since I tend to interview a lot of emergent voices a lot of them don't necessarily know what it's like to get themselves published so it's always good to get a sense of that from somebody who's experienced so i appreciate that of course thank you uh just in closing i would love for you to tell us how we can follow you and if you are scheduled to read anywhere and virtually obviously <laughs> <laughs>
1: definitely uh follow me on instagram at hunter l hazelton and then a- hazelton is H A Z E L T O N. it's not so much set up yet just uh you know a, a highlight of my work and as a poet but um that's definitely what i want to make it out to be um, mm-hmm. and that's how i communicate a lot with people um right. additionally in the valley uh, i don't have any scheduled readings um or or plans to attend anything because everything's been canceled. Right, right. Um, but um, I do co-coordinate uh, uh, poetry on Roosevelt Row mm-hmm. here in the Valley. Um, and so we are not going to be out there this first Friday there where we are always open to to new and emerging poets. Uh, we do open mics. We do typewriter poetry every month. Uh, so I'm out there on 4th Street and Roosevelt um, every first Friday. We also have our own social media accounts. So if you look up Poetry on Roosevelt Row, you'll be able to find um, our pages um, and then you'll be able to find links to our personal pages. So I run it along with my good friends uh, and poets, Sam Hoy and Bridget Bredos. Yeah, that's how you can definitely find me.
0: Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate us chatting about our poems together.
1: Absolutely, I would definitely give you my time this was um it was such an honor to be on here so thank you so much
0: Yes, same you can find us at poetsandmuses.com as well as on social media via instagram and twitter under poets and muses you can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter either at poetsandmuses.com or at the upper right hand side of the poets and muses soundcloud page Now, besides the Poets and Muses website and SoundCloud page, you can also listen to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, as well as Stitcher. I'm your host, Imogen A-Rate. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you continue to stay safe, and I look forward to bringing you another episode next Sunday.